Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. Good morning, church. I am thankful to God that he saw fit by his goodness and grace to me to put Nathan in my life as a friend and as a partner in ministry. Uh, your, your pastor is a man of strong conviction. He is a man well-respected in our network of churches. And I know you know this. I know that you know your pastor is amazing. But sometimes it's just good to hear somebody else say it and confirm what you already know. So let me tell you what you already know, church. You are a blessed community of faith to call this man your pastor. I thank God for him. And it's my honor to uh, represent the churches of the SBTC. Uh, You are part of a larger network, a family of faith, a family of churches, 2,684 churches deep in the state of Texas, about 47,000 deep across the United States of America who are all pulling their resources and relationships together through what we call the cooperative program to reach Texas and impact the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you guys are faithful partners in the cooperative program. So let me say thank you. Thank you for being uh, sacrificial and faithful and regular in your giving uh, so that the gospel might reach uh, around the corner and across the globe. Because you give as a church member faithfully through Millwood Baptist Church to God's kingdom causes, and because you as a church family give faithfully through the cooperative program, you can say that you are fully funding the salaries of 3,700 missionaries all over the face of the planet who don't have to come back here and ask for funds in the United States every year. You can say that you are planting 700 churches across North America every single year and supporting them financially. You can say that you are scholarshipping 20,000 seminary students in six different Southern Baptist seminaries across the United States who are the leaders of the church today and tomorrow. 20,000 students. You can say that you, uh, as a faithful giver through this church and this church through the cooperative program that you are coming to the aid of communities of faith and communities at large uh, when they are riddled with disaster and various crises of many kinds. You can say all this and more because you faithfully give through this church to God's kingdom causes and as a church through this church and through the cooperative program that the nations might know and worship the one true God through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So thank you for your faithfulness as part of our network of churches. And it's my honor, I really am, I'm honored to come and open the Word of God with you this morning and share with you from the passage that has been read. We're looking in our text today at the paradox of heaven's power. The paradox of heaven's power. And a paradox, I know you're smart people in Austin, Texas, but just to remind you, a paradox is a statement that is true, or at least is true in its context, But on the surface, it seems like it might be somewhat contradictory. And uh, the English language is full of paradoxical statements. So let's start with just a few of them. Let's start with some call and response. Yes, I actually want you to say things out loud to me, okay? I'm going to start a very common paradoxical statement, and I want you to finish it out loud. Are the instructions clear? Everybody's good? Okay, say yes. Okay, that way I know you have a voice and you can participate. Here we go. So I'm going to start the statement. You finish it. Here we go. Less is good. How about this one? You have to spend money to... Yeah, some of you said make money and some of you said save money. And that's another sermon for another day. Uh, How about this one? This is the beginning of the... Right, and how many times have you said that over the last three years? And, and so on and so forth. The, the point is, all of these statements can be true in their own individual context, but on the surface, they seem somewhat contradictory. 
And we see several paradoxical statements in our text this morning. For instance, in verse 20, as you look at it, hasn't God made the wisdom of this world foolish? And then in verse 25, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And then you look at verse 27, God's chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God has brought nothing, brought to nothing what is viewed as something. And in our text this morning, even the central idea of the text itself is paradoxical, that a crucified Savior would demonstrate the power of God. Now, I know that when you think of the local church today, in our cultural context, the word powerful is not something that often immediately comes to mind, but it is true. This is who God says you are in Christ Jesus. It is according to the infinite wisdom of a timeless God that the church in every generation and every individual member of it might be able to live from the overflow of the power of heaven that belongs to you because of your faith in and your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the follower of Jesus is powerful, and the local church of Jesus is powerful. And what's in view, at least in our text this morning, is the power of God. And I want to show you from the text this morning three paradoxes in which heaven's power is on display. Three paradoxes in which heaven's power is on display. And the first is this, heaven's power is on display in the foolishness of the message. Heaven's power is on display in the foolishness of the message. And you saw this from verses 18 through 25. To those who would hang their faith on signs and wonders, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would say, the cross is the power of God. And to those who would hang their faith on, uh, on something looking for wisdom or looking for understanding, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would say, the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God. I mean, how unthinkable is this? How irrational, might we say, is this? That the God of the ages would be so pleased to make it so that the power of the gospel would be hung on a crucified Savior. How unthinkable, how, how foolish to human wisdom that forgiveness and life would come through one who's been condemned and crucified. And so in verse 18, you see this phrase that's very important to our text this morning, the word of the cross. The word of the cross is none other than the gospel message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of the cross. This is the simple gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sin. On the cross of Calvary, he bridged the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. There on the cross, as Jesus hung in the balance between your sinfulness and God's holiness, the Father poured out the full weight of his wrath against your sin onto the person of Jesus Christ and it was fully dealt with there on the cross of Calvary. So in Christ, on the cross, Jesus did not only die for you, Jesus died instead of you as a substitutionary atonement for your sin. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died on the cross. They took him off of the cross. They buried him in a borrowed tomb. He rose from the dead on the third day. History confirms the Bible attests the Holy Spirit will show you in your own heart that this Jesus is now the exalted Lord over all. And this is the simple gospel message, the word of the cross. This gospel is foolishness, the Bible says, to a certain group of people. 
What we just said, Jesus died for your sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead according to the Scripture. This simple message is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And in the text, this is a passive participle. That means passive means you're not the one doing the action. The action is being done to you. It's participial, meaning it's an ongoing action. So we we might be able to actually translate this something like this. Those who are being perished. The word of the cross, the gospel message is foolishness to those who are being perished. Let me say it this way because it really is quite logical if you think like Christ with the mind of Christ. Let me show it to you this way. It is true, is it not, that you don't have to do anything to die except live. Isn't that true? Everybody everywhere will eventually die. You don't have to do anything to die except Live, and the Bible affirms this. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed once for a man to die, and after that, the judgment. Likewise, in the same sense, the death of sin, eternal death, separation from God, is the natural, passive course for everybody, everywhere, down through the generations, who does not embrace the message that is the word of the cross. So hear this today. If you are not part of Christ's church, if God is drawing you and you do nothing, then you will die in your sin and you will be separated from God for all of eternity in a Christless hell. Not because that's God's plan for your life, but just because he loves you, he's extended the offer to you, he's drawing, uh, this, drawing you to this message in Christ and you've refused, you've kept him at arm's length. And this is the word of the cross, that apart from Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary, without Jesus, every single human being is on a natural collision course for everlasting hell. Eternal separation from the God of the ages, that is spiritual death. Why? Because our sinfulness is condemning us, and our sinfulness is killing us. And if that sounds like foolishness to you this morning, then the Bible says you are perishing. You're being perished by your sin. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the word of the cross is power, also in verse 18, to a different group of people. And that group of people are those who are being saved. So the word of the cross is power to those who are being saved. And you would say, Tony, I want to believe that, but it's so paradoxical. I mean, it doesn't seem logical. Does it? It doesn't seem logical at all that me and my human wisdom that I should believe that I can hang all of my eternity on a condemned and crucified Savior. And I've got to tell you that the Apostle Paul would agree with you. It's not logical at all. It seems like foolishness to human wisdom that you should hang your eternity on a crucified Savior. Apart from Christ, the power of God is completely irrational. But to those who are called... Verse 24, to those who are called in Christ, it's a different story altogether. When you embrace the word of the cross, you're filled with the wisdom of God, verses 24 and 25, and it's at that very moment that the paradox of the the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross of Calvary immediately becomes the power of your new life in Him. And the whole point of this section in verses 18 through 25 is this, that the power of God is not to be figured out, verses 18 through 23. Instead, the power of God is to be embraced in Christ Jesus, verses 24 and 25, or perhaps we can put it another way and say this, you will wrap your head 
around heaven's power when you wrap your life around heaven's Savior. You will wrap your head around heaven's power when you wrap your life around heaven's Savior. How beautifully paradoxical that the power of God would hang on a condemned and crucified Savior. Secondly, heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of the call. Heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of those who are called. You see this in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, but we're just going to take it one verse at a time. In verse 26, Paul implores you to consider your calling. Think about your salvation. Consider uh, your, your, your position in Christ. That is, your calling to Christ in salvation. If you are saved, it's because God has called you to himself by repentance from sin and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that is a beautiful and encouraging truth. That the God of the ages would cut through all of the noise in your life right now and just call you by name and invite you into eternal life, the repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. The question is why? I mean, I know me. Why would God invite me, of all people on the planet, why would God invite me into so great a salvation? Why would he call you into repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ? Well, in the words of the psalmist, maybe we can ask, what is man that you're mindful of him? Look at verse 26. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. See, God doesn't call us because we're noble. Now, surely there are some with nobility who are called to Christ, but they're not called because of their nobility, rather in spite of it. And then look at verse 27. Instead, God has chosen what's foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So God doesn't call us because we're strong. Now, surely there are those who are strong, whom God has called to salvation in Christ, but they're not called because of their strength, rather in spite of it. And then look down to verse 28. God's chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something God doesn't call us because we're popular. Surely there are those with popularity who are called to salvation to God through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, but none of them have been called because of their popularity, rather in spite of it. And why? Why does God do this? Why does God in Christ Jesus insist that, that God would strip us away from every individual claim to significance if we were going to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Because honestly, it, it, it seems a little counterproductive to us. If you and I were to think of this person who has a platform and who has a position and who has notoriety and popularity, we would say, man, if God would just save that person, that person, he or she could use their platform to expand the gospel and advance the Great Commission in our generation like no one else. God, why wouldn't you save that person? And that's not the way God works through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would require that person to strip himself, strip herself of every claim to righteousness and every claim to individuality so that they can find themselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. All this is so that no one may boast in his presence. Why does God require that we strip all of our claims to individual notoriety and popularity and strength? It's so that in Christ, Christ is all we can claim in the presence of God. The power of God 
elevates the weak and relegates the strong. (laughs) What the cross does is challenge us to check our egos at the door. When we come into the community of faith, we have to check our egos at the door. If any of you watch the movies Fast and Furious, yeah, I'm not like advocating that you should watch. This is probably more like confession than advocation this morning, Pastor Nathan. Fast and Furious 7 in particular. Man, they just like they they cast the most manly men on the face of the planet. They just do. In Fast and Furious 7, you've got Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. All of them facing off and fighting and, and going back and forth, flexing. I remember talking about like three of the most popular, strongest, most notable men on the face of the planet right now who are here in this movie. And you see all the intense fighting and all the action scenes, but what you don't get to see is how those individual actors, actual real-life personalities, played a part in the making of the film. You never get to see that unless you read some articles. And I read an article recently about how these three men were so self-conscious about how uh, their roles would portray them in Fast and Furious 7 that they literally hired people to count the number of punches they took on the screen. Now, I knew you wouldn't believe me, so I figured I'd just read to you a quote from the Wall Street Journal, reputable source sometimes. And here's, here's the quote from the Wall Street Journal. Listen to this. According to producers... And crew members on the films, Mr. Statham, 51 years old, negotiated an agreement with the studio that limits how badly he can be beaten up on screen. Mr. Diesel, 52, has his younger sister, that's manly, a producer on the films, police the number of punches he takes. And Johnson, we're talking about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, 47 years old, enlists producers, editors, and fight coordinators to help make sure he always gives as good as he gets. Isn't that nuts? I mean, like, I wouldn't pick a fight with any of those guys if I saw them on the street, whether or not they got beat up on the screen. Have you seen them? They're ridiculously manly and strong. There's no way I would face off against them. But as it turns out, even for the most popular and the strongest and the most noteworthy among us, the human ego is still a very delicate thing. And so here's where the cross of Christ comes into play. We either, you and I, at the foot of the cross of Christ, we either embrace the humiliation of our sin and be made strong in Christ, or we claim our own strength apart from Christ and be brought to nothing in our sin. It's one of those two. No middle ground. So verse 28, again, God has chosen what's insignificant and despised in the world. What's viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one will boast in his presence. Verse 31, let one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now some people, their plan for getting into heaven is that when that day comes, because it's the natural passive course of all of living humanity, to one day die and stand before the throne of God in judgment. It's their plan that one day when they stand before God, they might somehow be able to impress Him. And that sounds something like, God, you know me. My whole family has attended this church my whole life. God, I sit in the chair. I sing the songs. I give the money. I serve on the committees and the ministry team. God, in general, 
I'm a really good person. And that's their plan to impress God, to get into heaven. But you know, as well as I know, that the people who know you best and love you most love you too much to be impressed by you. And God, all-knowing and all-loving as He is, God loves you enough that He's not impressed with you. He doesn't invite you to salvation because of anything you've done, and He doesn't invite you to salvation because of your potential of something that you could possibly do. I want to I want you to try to wrap your head around this today, this simple phrase that I'm about to say, because it will radically change the way you live your life in Christ Jesus. And here it is. God does not love you because of who you are. God loves you because of who He is. And there is great freedom in that. No one will boast in God's presence. Heaven's power is on display in the insignificance of the called. And thirdly and finally this morning, heaven's power is on display in the ineloquence of the messenger. Heaven's power is on display in the ineloquence of the messenger. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. Paul was a brilliant man. When you read the New Testament letters, you can see clearly he has a tight grasp on language and on rhetoric and on culture and on persuasion. But when he comes to the Corinthian church, he made this choice to divorce himself from all of that, from all of that flattery of speech, from all that cleverness of human wisdom, so that he could highlight the beauty and the power of the simple word of the cross. Paul believed and Paul witnessed and Paul demonstrated that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to win its own hearing. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to win its own hearing. I think this is beautifully paradoxical. Don't you? That in every generation, that means including ours, the power of the gospel would be magnified by the simplicity of its message. You know, marketing firms have capitalized on this for decades in the West. They have got this down. Think with me through some slogans and through some catchphrases that marketing firms have used. Anybody in here in the marketing world? Are you in marketing? No? Okay, great. Well, if you know somebody who's in marketing then uh, just shake their hand and tell them thank you from Christ Church for this wonderful illustration today, okay? Think through these phrases with me. What they're doing is they're, they're summarizing their entire service or their entire product into just like a few short, simple words that embody their whole message. So we started this sermon with some, some call and response, some fill in the blank and the same spirit. Let's do that again. You ready? I'll start these phrases. You know them all. You finish them out loud. You ready? Everybody understand the instructions? Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. Like a good neighbor. Look at that. That's great. By the way, none of these are sponsors of Millwood Baptist Church. I, just, I mean, I'm sure we're open to that if they'd like to be. But. Secondly, melts in your mouth. Good. What is that? 
What product? M&M's, of course. Okay, here's the third one. The few, the proud. Hoorah. Good. Red Bull gives you? Yeah, that was for the millennials among us. That was good. Snap, crackle. Why do you know all of these? One, because you are overly commercialized and you watch way too much TV. That's very true. And secondly, because it's just the genius of the marketing enterprise. These institutions, these organizations have wrapped their entire message for decades around just a few short, simple words that embody the reason for their existence. And for the church of Jesus, our message is the word of the cross. Jesus died for our sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures projected. And everybody who's called by God, who approaches him at the foot of the cross, through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, everybody everywhere who calls on the name of Jesus is saved. And it really is that simple. This is the message of Jesus' church. This is who we are. As Christians, I think a lot of times we're, uh, when we're considering sharing the gospel with someone, we're considering sharing our faith with someone, a lot of times uh, we take pause for a number of reasons. I think one of those reasons is because we're concerned that, that in our presentation we may not be compelling enough, or we're concerned that maybe we'll leave something out, or we're concerned that whenever we confront our friend or family member with the gospel that we might actually put them off and lose a relationship instead of winning them to Christ. Or just because, man, we're so busy and there's so much going on in the world, I think sometimes we're just concerned that the noise of the moment might drown out the song of salvation. And in all of these things, here's what the great apostle is saying to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ in every scenario has the power to win its own hearing. Maybe we could say it like this. The gospel doesn't need to be polished. It just needs to be presented. And it doesn't need a dynamic messenger, just a faithful one. Verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And here's what it all comes down to. The word of the cross is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not complicated, but it is urgent. The gospel is not complicated, but it is urgent. So as you consider your response this morning to the word of the cross and to the word of God, consider your response to the prayers of the saints, the fellowship of this church, consider your response to the reading of the Word of God and to the songs of faith that we've sung from our hearts. Here's my plea to you. If you're not sure of your salvation, if you don't know, you would ask that question, Tony, man, I, I really don't know if there's been a moment in my life that I can point back to and say, that's the day God called me to faith in Christ Jesus and I turned away from my sin and I trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you don't have that moment, this is it. God might be calling you right now to respond in repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, and I don't want you to miss through that. He'll cut through all the noise of your life right now and invite you to respond in repentance and faith. And those of you who are Christians, you're members of Millwood, God has given you a great stewardship. There are tens of thousands of people in your community. There are 30 million in Texas. There are 8 billion across the face of the planet. 
And God has entrusted all of them to you in this generation that you might work in your circles of influence, in your relationships, at work, at school, and in your family and in your neighborhood to share the simple word of the cross. Not polished, just presented. You don't have to be a dynamic messenger, just a faithful one. And he's called you to partner with like-minded sister churches to take this same word of the cross across the state of Texas and all over the world. And my call to response to you today would be to double down in prayer on your commitment to the simple word of the cross in your backyard and all over the world. Lord God, would you take the reading and the teaching, the proclamation of your word through the power of your spirit and apply it to the deep places of our lives today. God, we came to meet with you, to worship you, to be encouraged and equipped by you. And here we are now responding in simple faith. So God, show us what to do with the word that we've heard and find us faithful to you in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.